Welcome to Money Stories with LDT. I'm Linda Davis-Taylor, and this is The Price You Pay for College with Ron Lieber. And what these parents are really asking me is a question about value, right? And for all of the ink that I had spilled in you know previous columns about how to save for college or how to pay for college, I'd missed the most important question of all, which is what to pay for college. Today on Money Stories, we're joined by author and journalist Ron Lieber. Ron has been the Your Money columnist for the New York Times since 2008. Before coming to the Times, he wrote the Green Thumb personal finance column for the Wall Street Journal and was part of the startup team at the paper's personal journal section. Ron's newest book is called The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. The book is a culmination of his 15 years of personal finance reporting. The Price You Pay for College Ask education leaders questions that families don't know or are afraid to ask puts the surprisingly small amount of existing data on this topic into context and pulls back the curtain on how schools set prices. I can't wait for you to listen to our conversation today. We'll dive straight into the complex intersections of family, parenting, education, and money. Well, welcome, Ron. I am absolutely thrilled that you have joined our Money Stories conversation today. And I really want to begin by congratulating you on tackling this extraordinarily challenging money topic about college in your newest book, The Price You Pay for College. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, we're going to talk about the book, of course, but before we get to that, I would love to hear a little bit about your own journey, you know, you're the writer behind the award-winning Your Money column at the New York Times, which so many of us have read for years, and the author of now two books about families and money, and, and a, goodness, a co-author to others. How did you get here? You know, how did, what really drew you to the intersection of personal finance and journalism? Well, I mean, I guess we have to start with journalism first. And, you know, I grew up uh, at a K-12 school, an independent school in Chicago called Francis Parker um, that was known for turning out a lot of mm -hmm. creative people, not necessarily so many journalists. And I didn't know a lot of people who did this sort of thing uh, when I was growing up. Um, but I knew I was reasonably good with words. And, um, you know, I, I had figured out where I wanted to go to college reasonably early on. Applied early decision to Amherst College, got a note in the mail, December 13th, 1988, from one Linda Davis Taylor. <laughs> Small world. <laughs> and uh, literally pulled the envelope out of, uh, out of the box, like from the outside. I'd run home in the middle of the school day with a friend, you know, ripped it open. It was thin, right? I worried that was a bad sign. Right. Hearts pounding, right? The I get the good news. The days before electronic notification. Right? right. Yeah, I get the good news. I scream at the top of my lungs and neighbors come running thinking that something terrible has happened or somebody's being murdered. Quite the contrary. <laughs> um, you know, and I get to college and, and learn that there um, is this work that you can do in addition to working at the student newspaper, they can help you get training as a writer. You can work and write for the college's alumni magazine. Mm -hmm. I realized that was a thing that you could do as an undergraduate. There was a fantastic local 
newspaper still is daily newspaper the daily hampshire gazette in northampton massachusetts i got an internship there uh, after my junior year in college and learned a ton about the community and you know wrote 100 stories in 75 days or something like that and so I had a decent sense that I wanted to test it out professionally. Um, the personal finance side of it has more than a little to do with my time at Amherst as well. So when I was thinking about applying, um, you know, I was on scholarship at Francis Parker in Chicago. We did not have enough money uh, to pay full freight at Amherst or most of the places that I had thought about going. And we had found our way to a consultant in the greater Chicagoland area who for not very much money kind of pulled the curtain back and explained to us, you know, all of the secrets mm -hmm. of how the financial aid system worked. And then when I got to Amherst, I encountered St. Joe Paul Case, mm -hmm. who I know you're familiar with. Absolutely. Um, and St. Joe literally, you know, took us in each year. My mom flew out, you know, hat in hand. We asked for a little bit mm -hmm. more money, a little bit of a better deal. And he always managed to come through. And, you know, there was a lesson to me there that, you know, there are always grownups out there who can explain complex systems involving money. Um, and that many of those systems are made to be hacked, not illegally, right? Um, mm -hmm. But there's always a way to be uh, of above average prowess in navigating mm -hmm. any given system. So, you know, it's probably not all that surprising that I grew up to be the person whose beat is beating the mm -hmm. system. That to me is what personal finance is, right? So that's kind of how it happened. I mean, it took an editor, a couple editors, the Wall Street Journal in 2002, who were starting the personal journal section there at the time, um, who hired me. You know, I, I, I knew by then that the journalism that I wanted to do was journalism that was of um, used to humanity, of use to humanity in a way that you would sort of rip something out of the paper uh, or offline and immediately put it to work in your life. Um, but it was the two of them who really figured out that my beat was beating the system, right? Mm -hmm. And that that too was personal finance. And they gave right. me a column there in 2005 when they started the Saturday newspaper. Then the Times noticed what I was up to. And I ended up there in 2008. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happened. And, you know, it's a great uh, amusement to Dan Barbazad at Amherst, whose Econ 11 class is still one of the hardest things I've ever mm -hmm. had to muddle through. Um, you know, I'm not so good at numbers, turns out. I am not so good at economics, it turns out. Um, and maybe the reason I have been successful at explaining personal finance to other people is because sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, it takes an awful lot of effort for me to explain it to myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I'm good at conversational plain right. English in this context, it's probably because of that. Well, I, I think that you and I have something else in common that I'm just... I'm just realizing this conversation, you know, after, after some years in higher ed, I went into the financial services area, financial advisory firm. And now uh, 20 years after doing that, this whole thing of financial education is very much on my mind. And I, I think that's really what you've been doing with your writing and your, your perspective on, on Amherst and economics and everything, you, you're a financial educator extraordinaire. And now, of course, you have taken it to, a, to a, another level at a time when this is so needed. And your book, The Price You Pay for College, you, you use the phrase, pull back the curtain, and you have pulled back the curtain on this process of uh, the price of a college education in the United States and given your readers, uh, such insights into 
how to approach the process and how to approach the financial decision-making, which I think you and I agree hasn't gotten enough attention. And you mentioned what brought you to write on this particular topic, but say a little bit more about that because I, I, I can't even imagine the hours and the thinking and all the interviews and, and uh, talk a little bit about that topic, how you decided to do it. Sure. So there were a couple of things that are going on. Certainly there's the personal side of this, right? I am the father of two daughters. Mm -hmm. One of them is a ninth grader who's 15. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're knocking on the door ourselves, although she will almost certainly take a gap year, at least if I have something to say about it. And then we've got a five-year-old, right? So we've got two kids. We live in New York City, high cost of living. Both of us are journalists. We're frantically scrambling, you know, working mm -hmm. two, three jobs, right? Yep. You know, writing books on the side and doing yep. whatever we can to, you know, hustle and rustle up additional income so that our daughters don't have to think quite as hard about what college will cost as I did. And so this is personal. Um, but it is also professional too. And what was going on at the New York Times was that my various inboxes were starting to overflow each spring with a combination of three kinds of messages. There were the upper middle class uh, subscribers of the New York Times who had just sort of blithely assumed that you know more aid, more need-based financial aid was going to be coming their way. And when it didn't, uh, they realized that they had made a bunch of really expensive promises to their eldest or only kid that they weren't sure that they were going to be able to make uh, or that they weren't going to be able to make without six figures of debt. And they wanted to know if I could help. You know, and it was April 12th. There was nothing I could do, right? Then there were some other um, extremely puzzled parents who were coming to me again, spring of their only or eldest kid's senior year. And they wanted to have a conversation about this merit aid that they'd been offered. And they didn't really know what it was. They didn't know why they'd gotten it. They hadn't mm -hmm. applied for it. And no one had really explained to them in any kind of a detail how that system worked. And I was getting these puzzled messages. Ron, um, what is this stuff? And can I get some more of it? And I'm beginning to think that maybe something happened or is happening here that I don't really understand. And they were right. Something was happening mm -hmm. that they didn't understand. And in fact, almost nobody understood it, including a lot of the professionals who were supposed to be guiding them. So that was the second kind of call. And then the third kind of call were from, you know, sort of smart aleck readers who were like, all right, you know, I read you regularly. I read the Times regularly. Your stupid newspaper can't shut up about how we live in the era of big data. So why don't you show me the big data set um, that it can explain to me why, you know, Cornell at $300,000 is $100,000 better than Ithaca College, you know, with $100,000 in merit aid, discounting it to 200000 and why Ithaca is $100,000 better than Binghamton, which is, you know, our, our arguably right. most selective or prestigious um, state university here in New York. And I thought, wow, um, I don't have that data set. It doesn't exist. Um, there are probably a lot of reasons why it doesn't exist. We should talk about those reasons loudly, um, you know, in impolite ways in public. And what these parents are really asking me is a question about value, 
right? And for all of the ink that I had spilled in, you know, previous columns about how to save for college or how to pay for college, I'd missed the most important question of all, which is what to pay for college, right? And as soon as you're having that value conversation, you're one letter away from having a values conversation. And that's where I thrive, right? If I'm right. better than anybody else at, at, at anything, it's about how um, our emotions um, affect our financial decisions. And it's about um, the things that we hold most dear and how those can and should uh, impact the way we make financial decisions. And I knew there was no way I was going to be able to address any of this in one or five or 10 newspaper columns. Mm -hmm. And that question of what to pay for college became the price you pay for college. Right. Which became uh, hours and days and years probably of research and talking to a lot of people on the, on the inside and outside of the, of the whole area. So you mentioned you started the conversation with back when you were a young fellow and you had a eager beaver mom or parents who, mm -hmm. you know, were really for that time on top of their on top of their game and and digging in there and finding out about this process. As you think back to yourself and your family discussions then, do you think you would have done anything differently? I mean, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, knowing what I know now about what happened to me at Amherst, I don't think I would do it any differently. Um, you know, in the course of reporting the price you pay for college, uh, a former colleague of mine from the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, showed up at a, a, a talk that I was giving and he brought his college roommate in tow who he had met, you know, 55 years previous. And they're still, you know, the best of buds. And his roommate came up to me afterwards, um, you know, had heard me preview a little bit mm -hmm. of the, the reporting I was doing for the college book. And he said, you know, he said at Yale, I met the kinds of people I never could have imagined existing in the world. And that just blew me away, right? That's as soon as it came out of his mouth, I said, I'm going to be repeating that sentence for the next 10, 15, 20 years, right? Um, and it was true for me at college, right. right? So why would I go back and do it differently mm -hmm. if I thought there was a risk that that wouldn't happen for me? And see, the thing about that is, um, you know, at Francis Parker, the K-12 school I went to in Chicago, those friends are my family still to this right. day. Um, you know, we were together for 14 years and we'll be together for life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think there was any possibility I could meet the, the, the quality or quantity of, of people who, who would become like family to me. Um, but I did. Uh, and I, I, I don't think it, it was an accident. So, you know, I can't imagine having done it any differently. Um, but then again, right? I mean, maybe I was lucky, right? Or, or maybe I'm giving Amherst too much credit. Maybe that would have happened in dozens of places. I, I think it's possible that it would have. Um, but we'll certainly do it differently with our older daughter. I mean, I, I think one of the things that's, um, uh, you know, the advice that I give that runs counter to what a lot of college experts give is that I think it's perfectly okay and reasonable and in fact useful to start way, way earlier. Um, it's silly to shop these places only having spent three or four hours at each one. Mm -hmm. uh, you should spend three or four years to the extent that you're able to financially and logistically kind of wandering around, you know, just like do laps of America if you can afford it or at least do the research online. And 
think really hard and and you know operate more than just on an hour's worth of instinct around you know which region of the country right and like big or small right it, you know it's like a, um these things are um are not so easy to discern just on the basis of a gut instinct um and i think it's important to lay eyes on a lot of them right so the, the reason i asked that question i guess is that for our listeners as fraught with stress and consequence as a decision is it can work out well you mentioned your your own story okay it happened to be amherst you and i agree it's a phenomenal institution it can work out well and i think your book now helps people to make sure that it does from a lot of perspectives yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, you know, on the front end, uh, you know, it, it was fraught for my family because my parents had just split up. Um, my dad was coming off a couple of years of like essentially no income, mm -hmm. right? So um, it was messy. Yeah. Uh, and um, they were ultimately able to communicate at least about what it was that they were going to be uh, able to pay. Um, there was a gap um, that as a teenager, I had trouble navigating uh, between my father's ability to pay and his willingness to do so. And, you know, even his ability was a little uncertain, I think to him at the time too, as much as he wanted to, because, you know, his, his employment had been uncertain. And so, um, you know, that's tricky, right? But I'm trying to encourage families to have those conversations early and often so that there's no surprise, you know, for the teenager senior year in high school. Um, you know, it's only fair to know hopefully before high school starts, right? What sort of um, financial constraints, if any, you're gonna be operating within. Um, and then I think, you know, all of that honesty, both financial honesty and, and emotional honesty about, you know, the fear and the guilt and the snobbery and the elitism that can govern some of these processes, um, you know, only through an emotionally honest, you know, shopping and sorting, um, process, uh, you know, can you really come to, uh, you know, an end decision um, that feels optimally good, right? So, you know, I ended my reporting feeling very, very hopeful. Um, uh, not so much about my daughter's chances, you know, to getting into, you know, Amherst or Columbia, um, where her mom went, um, but just about the possibility of, of a match that made a lot of mm -hmm. sense because there are all sorts of great places in the country, dozens and dozens. So Rana, among all the things you could, you could do in this conversation, sharing your own personal story with that vulnerability, I really thank you for that because that's what we're trying to encourage with these conversations, personal money stories. And I think that this is a topic that most people would rather talk about anything than their own personal money story. And especially someone like you, obviously successful in life, you're doing so many phenomenal things in the world, but to share that it's, it can be tough sometimes. There can be these very, very difficult financial circumstances. And if, if we share those, then we can learn from each other. So I really appreciate you, you sharing that. And this decision of how to assess value and connecting with family values is 
to me so so powerful and you suggest that you know families should begin that process with you know as early as much time for that as possible so when you mentioned you have a five-year-old so when do you when do you think I mean, as soon as you have kids, I mean, what, when should this conversation begin and how can you begin it? How can you begin it as a family with all the fraughtness of values and all, everything you've mentioned? I'm so glad you're bringing this up and I, I'm both um, disappointed, but also not really surprised to hear the words come out of your mouth. Um, it, I, I can't quote you exactly, but you said, you know, that they're, 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 um, uh, you know, sort of few things that people want to talk about less right. or whatever, right? right. And, in fact, uh, women women say that they'd rather, 61% of women say they would rather talk about any other topic than money. So so just the dynamics in a, in a relationship right. and then families and kids and all that. So help us learn how to do that. Yeah, so um, a couple of months before The Price You Pay for College came out, I actually um, put together a guide for financial advisors to having better financial conversations about mm -hmm. money with clients. Um, when my last book came out, The Opposite of Spoiled, I was um, pleasantly surprised, but, but surprised to find that financial advisors all over the place seized on it and gave it to clients because they felt like it was you know, important for their clients to learn to talk to their kids about money and to give them some ideas about what to say when you do. Um, this is a different conversation because this is a conversation that you've got to have with your spouse, mm -hmm. if you have one, with your ex, for sure, if you've got one of those, to the extent that you can tolerate it, um, or with yourself, if you're flying solo, and you know, hopefully with a trusted advisor, or at least a friend who you know will challenge your thinking. Um, and I really do believe that it should start at birth, you know, in utero, right? I mean, this is one of the most expensive things that any of us will ever purchase. So it certainly makes sense to start the financial planning and the saving process, you know, two decades before um, the expense will come due. So, you know, it makes perfect sense to begin to talk about it, but what, what are you talking about? Right. You, you don't have any idea what kind of kid you have on your hand yet. Right. Um, so I suggest that people, let's assume it's a, a couple that's intact or, or still mm -hmm. speaking, uh, but these are questions you can ask yourself too. Um, have a conversation um, and a not short one about what the process of saving and paying and borrowing for college was like when you went to college, assuming you went. Talk about what your spouse's or your ex's um, parent or parents said to them about it, if anything. What did they do? Did they pay everything? Was it wordless? Um, were they able to pay everything, but they still forced you um, to pay for some of it? How much? How did they decide? Was money a factor in the decision making? Mm -hmm. What happened afterwards? How did you struggle with debt? Did you struggle with debt? Um, and I guarantee you pretty much that, you know, if you ask enough of those kinds of questions, you'll probably learn something about your spouse or your ex that you did not already know, unless you met them and, and were with them as they navigated that whole process between the ages of 17 and 23, 27, 37, whatever it is. Um, and then ask a whole nother set of questions. Well, okay. Um, 
you know, on, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate that experience emotionally, right? And how would you rate right. it financially, right? And what would you like to change for our child, if anything, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're off and running. And there's an opportunity at that point, um, you know, to navigate whatever gap or perhaps gulf um, that has opened mm -hmm. up and, and it may be a surprising one, right? Um, right? But, you know, better to begin to navigate um, those things in person because saving for what is in today's dollars, a $100,000, you know, University of California goal um, is awfully different than saving for a $325,000, you know, Stanford, mm -hmm. Pomona, Colorado College goal. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that it, and, and multiply that, you know, per kid, and then send it forward 15 or 20 or 25 years with tuition inflation. And all of a sudden, we're talking about, you know, potentially a million dollars in total costs. So if there's a gap or a gulf um, between you and your spouse or your ex, or if you can't make up your mind on your own, it's high time to have a conversation with a trusted friend or advisor. So you mentioned advisors and this topic is near and dear to my heart. I think you've, you've called these tough body conversations. I love this term conversation bombs. You know, and I, and I, I having worked in a financial advisory firm for 20 years, um, I just thought that was so accurate. <laughs> and, you know, seriously, though, I don't know that many financial advisors who are comfortable having those conversations. And maybe they would be comfortable, but they don't often think about that as part of their responsibility and think, no, I need to stay in my lane of portfolios and maybe a 529 plan comes up, but when you talk with financial advisors um, or when you hear from them, are you optimistic that the financial services industry can, can help take this on and help these tough money conversations happen as part of their work? I, I mean, yes and no. Um, you know, I, I wallow, wallow. I wallow in the, um, you know, 1% of uh, excellence, you know, in the financial mm -hmm. planning industry, right? Yeah. I, I try to only talk to and quote um, the very best people out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's one or two or 3% of the industry um, that is just doing a bang up job of this, right? They've right. gotten away decades ago from the idea that, you know, all they do is asset allocation and right. stock or fund picking um, so that they, they know that they need to specialize in, um, you know, having these conversations with mm -hmm. clients, having them repeatedly, um, serving as much, if not more, as a marriage counselor than mm -hmm. as a stockbroker. Um, and then they need more than a little technical knowledge of how all of this works, right? And it's right. not just the knowledge of, you know, the tax rules around 529 plans. It's around how need-based financial aid works because there are people with a quarter of a million dollars of household income who are qualifying for five figures of need-based aid per year. Um, and, you know, those, those people with a quarter of a million dollars, they're, they're earning enough to, to have financial advisors, right? right. Advisors right. need to be aware of this. Um, 
and uh, and then there's the whole question of of Marinade, which you know again can deliver six figures in discounts even for truly affluent people because this Marinade that's given you know more on the basis of mm-hmm. who you are and what you've done and, and less on what you earn and what you have um, that goes to anybody without regard for financial need or lack thereof, and so if you're not aware of how that system works and it can cause a six figure swing per kid and you call yourself a financial advisor, I mean, you're committing malpractice if you don't know how this works. Well, I thank you for sharing them. I think it's, it's just such a huge uh, topic. And at least I think we can, we can hope that the larger conversation in the country is shedding some light on this and certainly uh, I know that's one of the motivations for your extraordinary book, and again, pulling back the curtain, as you as you say. But uh, but with to give this message to the financial service industry, I think is almost as important as giving it to some of our families because it's that it's that consequential. So you mentioned, of course, now in addition to all of your expertise, you're getting to take this on as a personal project. Ninth grade means you're not that far away. You and your family are, are not that far away. And of course, um, you talk about your your prior book. You also have daughters. And also as the parent of two daughters, I just wonder, do you think that, and I know you only, if you have daughters and you don't have sons, so you couldn't make a comparison, but have you and your wife thought about the whole gender aspect to this money conversation with your daughters? We have. So, you know, when I was writing The Opposite of Spoiled, it was clear that parents talk to young women differently than they talk to young men. Um, And the only thing that young women learn more about before they leave home in the realm of money um, than young men do is philanthropy, right? So it's like, right, you get to find out how to give it away, but you don't get as much education on earning it or saving it or investing it. So we made a determination that we were going to talk about it a lot, that no questions were going to be off limits. You know, we wouldn't necessarily answer every question, but we'd always give an explanation why we weren't. Um, And uh, you know, as far as it goes with college, um, you know, one of the things that's going to be a, a requirement and, you know, th- this should feel like a privilege, not a requirement, but not every young woman feels this way. Um, we are definitely going to take a hard look at at least one women's college um, because the evidence is just abundantly clear that particularly in the areas of, of math and science, mm-hmm. um, the young women who are studying those topics at Uh, single sex schools are persisting, right? They are lasting, they are um, going um, through the major and and actually getting it uh, at greater rates than they might at at a larger private university or or, or certainly a big public one. And so, um, and you know, that's just one of many very good reasons to at least consider uh, a women's college. So, um, you know, we'll be looking at that Mm -hmm. and, um, and that will be important. So um, I read with great pleasure that part of your book about women's colleges. And I had the opportunity, as you know, to go on and be associated with a a very excellent women's college in California and was a board member and all of that. So I've lived in that world too. And it's one of the options, right? It's just one of the many options that young women 
thinking about their futures have. And this topic of gender and money, I've, I've spoken with thousands of women throughout my life now, and I'm so focused on this, and am surprised that even on, in, with millennial women, um, something like 45% will admit that they defer all of the financial decision-making to their spouse. Mm -hmm. And so when I, I thought it was kind of my generation maybe, or older even that did that. But what we're learning is that some of that is still going on. And so um, does that surprise you? And as you, as you now or with your peers, even uh, not even only your daughters, but just with your peers, this whole thing of women and money and couples and everything, does that surprise you that so many of that's happening? It does surprise me. I wish there was an easy way to correct it. It surprises me because we have more young women in college yes. than men. Um, you know, the ones who are coming out, uh, I think the statistics show now that um, they've either equaled or, or surpassed, um, you know, their their fellow male college graduates in terms of, of income. Um, you know, I've, I've always thought that women have better judgment on the whole than men when it comes to just about all financial decision making. And, you know, in terms of the kind of, you know, gonzo investment choices that um, young men often make, I, I mean, it's not an accident that, you know, most of the quotes that you see in all these stories about, you know, Robin Hood and, you know, mm -hmm. the craziness around free stock trading right now are for men. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we, we, you know, there've been studies for decades, as you know, um, showing that women um, portfolio managers outperform um, men for a, a, a whole variety of potential reasons. So why are we still seeing those numbers? I, I, look, I mean, it's the same, you know, forces of, of misogyny that, you know, whisper in people's ears, uh, you know, throughout our culture, I think, you know, telling women mm -hmm. that um, even if they are smarter, even if they are, um, e even if they are better investors, this is still somehow not their role. And I wish I knew who was responsible mm -hmm. for that voice, but it's, it's cultural. And I think it's bigger than any one person. Right. Well, but it can start with one person, which is why giving the message as a leader in our country yourself uh, and the way you and your family are going about these conversations with your own daughters um, at least encourages somebody else to do the same thing. So mm -hmm. um, we, can, we can look forward to that. So we've, we've talked about this book. We've talked about your other, some of your other work. Looking ahead, what do you think is next for you? What do you, what do you want to tackle next? I've given you another whole book you can write now, just now yeah. about women and money, but, um, but seriously, what, where do you, where do you hope that your money column brings you in 21? Um, thank you for asking. Um, I, in many ways, I feel like the luckiest person in the world professionally. I have this incredible platform. I figured I'd long since, you know, be out of ideas, but, you know, I just did a, a, a run through with my editor and there were, 60 ideas on the list, right? Even if nothing else happens in the world, those 60 ideas could keep me busy for, you know, the next 18 to 24 months. And so I think I've still got a, a long road ahead of me and I have this incredible platform and I've invested all these years now in getting better at the job. And what I want to do more than anything is just 
do that, right? Mm-hmm. And and not actually write another book anytime soon. Um, and, you know, just milk every ounce of impact I, I can out, out of this privilege that, you know, that I've been given at the times. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, 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 you, of course, consider it a privilege. It's, it's really a, a calling too that you, I think that you have and that you're sharing. And just from the tip of the iceberg that we that we've touched on today whether it's education or talking to your kids about money or women and money you can see that you can write for another 50 years and there'll be plenty to say and plenty that needs to be said about families and money and personal finance you've shared in your column your own vulnerabilities with your family your dad's passing and and so again, those, those personal money stories are what we need to hear. So we thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be able to do it. And you're right. It's a calling too. Thank you, Ron. I know everybody knows where to find you, but just remind <laughs> us where to find you. Sure. So uh, my personal website is ronlieber.com and you can contact me through there. I'm on all the usual social media channels at Ron Lieber. And then there's an archive of my work at the Times at nytimes.com slash Lieber, L-I-E-B as in boy, E-R. Terrific. Well, we look forward to reading you and hearing you for many years to come. Thank Thank you you so much. Want more money stories? Check out my Instagram at Linda Davis Taylor underscore LDT to learn more about our incredible lineup of guests and share your own money story. Until next time, 